Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost at LSE. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the school for this evening's discussion to be led by Dr. Christina Spohr of the topic Beyond the Cold War, How Summits Shaped the New World Order. Uh, now's the time to turn your mobile phones, please, to silent, although tweeting is welcome, and I think the hashtag is there at LSE Works. Let me just say a little bit of about this series LSE Works before introducing the speakers tonight. This is the third year that we've run LSE Works. LSE has, I think, the best public events program in the world. We host all sorts of eminent, famous speakers, but most of them come from outside LSE. The idea of LSE Works is to have one of our leading academics say something about his or her work and then have people from mainly outside the academic community respond to them to see how that work travels outside the university. So that's the idea of the LSE Works lecture series. Uh, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce each of our speakers, but the event will be chaired by Professor Janet Hartley, sitting in the middle, who is a Professor of International History herself, the head of the Department of International History, and a noted Russianist. Unfortunately, I have to sort of leave sometime after seven, so I'm just going to sit at the front for a while. Our lead speaker tonight is Dr. Christina Spohr, who is an Associate Professor in the International History Department here at LSE, where she's also Deputy Head of Department. Christina did her doctoral work at Cambridge, where she was also a Junior Research Fellow at Christ's College. After leaving Cambridge, Christina worked as a Research Fellow in the Secretary General's private office at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Christina is one of the world's leading younger scholars of post-war Germany and the Cold War. She's the author of Germany and the Baltic Problem after the Cold War, the development of a new Ostpolitik, 1989 to 2000, and currently is finishing a book entitled West Germany Comes of Age, Helmut Schmidt and the Reshaping of the International Order in the 1970s. Christina is also working as the lead author on a co-edited volume for Oxford University Press, and this bears on tonight's talk, on Cold War Summitry, Transcending the Division of Europe, 1970 to 1990. Then we have three very distinguished discussants. Uh, Sir Roderick Braithwaite is a retired British diplomat and author and another alumnus of Christ College, Cambridge. His diplomatic career included posts in Indonesia, Italy, Poland and a number of positions at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. From 1988 to 1992, Sir Roderick was the UK's ambassador in Moscow, first of all to the Soviet Union, then to the Russian Federation. Subsequently, he was a foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister John Major and chairman in 1992 and 1993 of the UK Joint Intelligence Committee. Sir Roderick Lynn is another very distinguished retired diplomat and currently the deputy chairman of Chatham House. Sir Roderick was British Ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2000 to 2004, having previously served, amongst other things, as Private Secretary to Prime Minister John Major, advising on foreign affairs, defence and Northern Ireland. Between 1990 and 1993, Sir Roderick was head of the Soviet and then Eastern European Department of the FCO, and before that, between 1987 and 1990, he worked as head of Chancery at the British Embassy in Moscow. Uh, more recently, Sir Roderick was a member of the Chilcot Inquiry into the circumstances leading up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, 
the report of which we all await with great interest. Finally, Arnie Westad is one of eight school professors at LSE, that's the highest category of professor here, and director of LSE Ideas. Unhappily for LSE, Arnie's going to leave us later this year to join the Kennedy School at Harvard University. But Harvard's courtship of Arna simply reflects his standing as one of the leading historians of his era. Arna's book from 2005 on the global Cold War won the Bancroft Prize, among other prizes, and his more recent book on restless empire, China and the world since 1750, won the Asia Society's Book Award for 2013. Arna is also the co-editor with Marvin, Malvin Leffler of the three-volume Cambridge History of the Cold War, which was published, I think, almost exactly five years ago. He's a noted lecturer and commentator on foreign policy strategy and on China's foreign affairs. So we have a very distinguished crew in front of you. Enough of introductions. Over to Christina. Thank you, Stuart, very much for your kind words, and um, thank you to the LSE for um, offering me financial support for this project on summits and the opportunity to share my findings tonight. Um, I would also like to thank my respondents for their time and for sharing um, their thoughts with me on um, the topic of tonight's lecture, namely on Beyond the Cold War, how summits shape the new world order. In 1989, the wider Soviet Communist Empire collapsed. In 1990, Germany reunified at the heart of Europe. In 1991, the Soviet Union imploded. Within three years, the map of Europe had been redrawn. The era of two opposed blocs, ideological and military antagonists, was gone. The era of bipolarity was over. It is such dramatic changes in the international order that truly make history. And when we look back, we see that new orders have often followed devastating wars. 1815, 1870-71, So here are two maps depicting the profound change of the European order in 1914-1919, and you can see here the geopolitical changes. And here we see two maps showing um, change of a similar order of magnitude in 1989-1991. The relatively smooth transition from Cold War to post-Cold War some 25 years ago had neither been planned nor anticipated. It all could have turned out so differently, both in terms of process and outcome. Crucially, in 1989-1991, it was not conflictual but peaceful change that brought about a new world order. And this is actually rather rare in world history. In fact, it may be unique. How and why did this happen? And what can be said about the outcome? As I will argue, between 1985 and 1991, it was continuous and constructive dialogue between leaders, summit talks, that essentially managed this dramatic shift in the geopolitical landscape so peacefully. I will concentrate on two case studies tonight. First, the superpower summits between 1985 and 1988, and second, 
the diplomacy surrounding German unification in 1989 and 1990. Symmetry raises the question about human agency, specifically the agency of the powerful and historical transition. The most skillful statesmen and women, as we all know, are keen to take initiative and to show leadership, to manage and exploit opportunities in what they see as turning points in world affairs. Their sense of power and leverage to, to steer history. Here, for instance, are Bismarck and Adenauer on such critical moments. Bismarck, the architect of the first unification of Germany, observed the following. The statesman has not to make history, but if ever in the events around him he hears the sweep of the mantle of God, then he must jump up and catch at its hem. Adenauer, the iconic uh, leader of post-1945 West, the West German rump state, said both in his discussions with Israel over compensation as well as to Charles de Gaulle, I feel the wings of world history beating in this room. In 1985, US President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev expressed a similar sense of freedom to shape the future and to move forward from Cold War antagonism. As Reagan pointed out in his easygoing way, to hell with the past, we will do it our way and get something done. In 1990, similarly, Chancellor Kohl told Gorbachev that now is a historic moment in world politics. One should use the opportunities. If one does not act, they will be lost. Kohl thus caught that double sense of what summits are about a fateful moment and also a unique opportunity if statesmen bond. And in this photo, I think, where you see Kohl, his foreign minister Genscher, and Gorbachev uh, in the middle, sitting on tree stumps in the Caucasus where they had a summit, I think the statesmen most certainly bonded. In the late 1980s, the leaders I'm talking about were especially sure that they could take control of the unruly surge of events. But as historians, we have to ask whether they were right. Did they steer history, or did history steer them? So let me now turn to my first case study on human agency, the Soviet-American summits of 1985 to 88. To be sure, the systemic crisis in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe was coming to a head. The planned economies were stagnating, and the bloc lagged behind the West technologically. A succession of Soviet leaders failed to get a grip on the situation. Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernenko, three ailing gerontocrats all died in quick succession. Three leaders in three years. On this slide, then, you can see that nature was trying to tell the Soviet leadership that it was recruiting from the wrong demographic. In 1985, the crucial change agent was Gorbachev. Look at this photo. There's one gerontocrat on the left and another one on the right. And in the middle, you have an energetic man with a spring in his suit. Gorbachev was keen to reform the Soviet system, but this required an improved relationship with the U.S., 
in order to reduce the crushing economic burden of the arms race on the Russian economy. In Gorbachev's view, this new relationship could only be achieved through a face-to-face meeting with the American leader. Rather than leaving relations with diplomats and the military, he wanted to cut through the bureaucracy and take charge himself. That, after all, is a perpetual attraction of symmetry. But it takes two to tango. U.S. President Reagan was notorious in the early 1980s as a ferocious cold warrior. After all, he had damned the Soviet Union as the evil empire. But there was another side to Reagan. Since he took office in 1981, he had been seeking an American-Soviet summit. But he got nowhere with all these old men in the Kremlin. After all, they were difficult to talk to as they kept dying on him. So... In 1985, Reagan responded warmly to the new, young, and dynamic Soviet leader. Their first meeting in November 1985 in Geneva established a real personal rapport. After only an hour's conversation, Gorbachev was, in his own words, deeply impressed by the president's, and I quote, idea of dialogue. For years, he said, American and Soviet leaders had simply communicated via the press, but now they were talking to each other rather than about each other. Mutual confidence grew almost visibly, so when they shook hands at the end of the very first day, this was evident to all. And you see real bonhomie, performed but also real. What Gorbachev called a spark of electric mutual trust had ignited between them. Reagan, for his part, kept muttering this. You could almost get to like the guy. (laughs) Reflecting in his memoirs, Reagan wrote that there was a chemistry between Gorbachev and me that produced something very close to a friendship. This instinctive human bond, akin to friendship that formed, was essential to smooth and open up superpower relations. And revolutionary new technology greatly facilitated communication. The simple introduction of simultaneous translation to superpower summits. This meant that Gorbachev and Reagan could listen via earphones, and you see this very clearly here, to professional interpreters instead of waiting for one man's comments to be translated before embarking on their own speech. Consecutive translation had always led to a chain of monologues, but now we could have a proper two-way conversation. Simultaneous translation thus also reduced meeting length, but more important, words could be directly linked to tone and body language, so that something close to a real-time conversation could ensue. Such immediacy and intimacy was unprecedented. And this, in the word of one of Gorbachev's aides, set Soviet-American relations on a completely new road. The Geneva summit was intended to kickstart nuclear arms control talks. As it happens, little progress was made in 1985. But I would argue that the budding political friendship and the ability to communicate more freely established a capacity for trusting dialogue that a year later enabled them 
to speak, to speak the unspeakable. In 1986, at their next meeting in Reykjavik, they were drawn into a passionate debate about a nuclear-free world. Reagan had long abhorred nuclear weapons. His strategic defense initiative, widely mocked as Star Wars, was genuinely intended to make nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. Gorbachev, on his side, was haunted by the Chernobyl disaster. If this could happen from an accident at a civilian nuclear power plant, and here you can see a map with the radiation contamination across Europe, then the fallout from nuclear war would be unimaginable. In the event, they pulled back at Reykjavik from the brink of such revolutionary ideas such as total nuclear disarmament. And the summit was seen by some as a failure. For there was no arms control treaty signed. But even voicing these radical ideas had at least made it possible for Gorbachev and Reagan to address specific issues of arms control. And by the end of the following year, in December 1987, when they met again in Washington, they were able to sign the INF Treaty. This abolished a whole category of nuclear weapons, something never done before during the superpower arms race. Gorbachev and Reagan thus used creative symmetry to establish real cooperation. They fully expected that competition between their two systems would continue, but they had diffused nuclear confrontation and the fear of annihilation that had been endemic since 1945, a central hallmark of what we call the Cold War. Through their symmetry, they also transcended the ideological divide. During the Cold War confrontation, America and Russia had made the adversary into an alien force embodying intrinsically opposed values, the other. Now, Reagan and Gorbachev made it possible to de-other the other. And this process had started with Geneva, with those cozy images of the two leaders joking around the fireplace. It culminated in their fourth summit when Reagan visited Moscow in May 1988 to ratify the INF Treaty. And as he walked around Red Square, Reagan was asked about his evil empire speech in 1983. He replied, I was talking about another time, another era. Some have argued that the four Reagan-Gorbachev summits and their tangible outcomes were the consequences of systemic pressures. The Western defense buildup of the early 1980s and Reagan's Star Wars on the one hand, and on the other, Gorbachev's need to break the grip of the Soviet military-industrial complex in order to advance reform at home. But I wish to argue that human agency in response to such pressures served as a catalyst for historical change. The Reagan-Gorbachev series of meetings at the summit, following a regular annual rhythm between 1985 and 1988, provided the arena in which the two leaders moved towards a convergence of values. So in sum, these years of symmetry laid the foundations for, for diffusing the Cold War. 
And now I want to move to my second case study, the summit diplomacy of 1989 and 1990. Because here, the effectiveness of dynamic summitry becomes all the more evident. During this phase, the Cold War was not merely diffused, but transcended. This period saw a bout of three-way negotiations between America, the Soviet Union, and West Germany. And this takes us into the delicate diplomacy surrounding German unification. The background is familiar to all of us, but I think it's important to mention a few things. In 1989, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Romania were transformed by political revolutions. But these did not change the map of Europe. The Soviet Union continued to maintain its sphere of influence through Comecon, the Warsaw Pact, and above all, the Red Army. But when the Berlin Wall was breached in November 1989, it was not only an internal revolution. With the fortified boundary between East and West Germany torn down, the question of a united Germany was back on the agenda. And this placed in question the European peace settlement of 1945, constructed around the partition of Germany that for 40 years had ensured stability across the continent. Now, the future of Europe was wide open. Superpower symmetry would prove essential to the resolution of the German question, and thus the transcending of the East-West divide. But this outcome was by no means inevitable. Reagan had developed a special rapport with Gorbachev. His successor, George H.W. Bush, was, however, more skeptical, both about Soviet policy and about Gorbachev's intentions. Bush, an ex-CIA man, became president in January 1989, but he avoided meeting Gorbachev until December. At the start of his presidency, he sought to cultivate Beijing. But when the Chinese leaders sent the tanks into Tiananmen Square in June 1989 to crush student protest, just as Poland and Hungary were beginning their transitions to democracy, Bush was forced into a fundamental rethink of geopolitical priorities. He turned his attention to the changes at the heart of Europe which he hoped to facilitate peacefully. The Red Army, after all, was still entrenched across the whole of Eastern Europe, and this meant Bush had to engage with Gorbachev. They eventually met in Malta in December 1989, and this summit was rather like the Reagan-Gorbachev icebreaker in Geneva in 1985, the two men, as you can see, really hit it off, and this allowed for the development of trust. Crucially, at Malta, they agreed they shared a set of common values. Above all, openness, pluralism, and the right to self-determination. As you can see from the statements, they really felt they were, they were entering a new era. They even talked about the end of the Cold War. And these values that they talked about, the openness, pluralism, and self-determination, would provide essential principles with which they approached German unification. 
Now, with the opening of the wall, the German question, a question bearing directly on the continental and global balance of power, moved to the top of the agenda. That Europe stood on the threshold of a fundamental change was clear. That this change would be achieved peacefully was anything but clear. After all, the Red Army was still stationed all over Eastern Germany and Eastern Europe. Political leadership was called for, and this is where summitry and human agency re-enter our story. But before we turn to summits, let me remind you of a few general points. The first is that West Germany emerged at this juncture in a truly dramatic and unprecedented way as an autonomous actor on the international scene. Chancellor Helmut Kohl unilaterally seized this initiative with his 10-point plan on the 28th of November 1989, envisaging confederal structures between the two Germany that would eventually lead to state unity. The second point relates to the breathtaking speed of events and and the foreshortening of time that resulted. Kohl had imagined that the process of unification would take several years. But now, the East German state, with a collapsing economy, mass emigration, and an impotent communist leadership, was dissolving in front of his eyes. He had to act fast. Fortunately for Kohl, the international conditions were unexpectedly auspicious. At Malta, Gorbachev committed himself to the principle of peaceful self-determination. Bush, who had initially held back, now passed the good news to Kohl, effectively empowering him to take the process further. At a series of meetings from Malta in 1989 to the Caucasus summit in July 1990, Kohl, Bush and Gorbachev hammered out the specifics of the German settlement. I want to stress that if this process had been left to the bureaucrats alone, a resolution could have taken years to achieve, while Germany and Europe spiraled into chaos. Instead, using the most streamlined decision-making forum possible, the summit, the leaders drove the process through in a matter of months. They did it in a way that was efficient, intensive, and disarmingly informal. Here in these photographs, you see our main protagonists clad in woolly jumpers and trainers, lounging on sofas or walking through the woods of the Caucasus, discussing the great issues of state. The magnitude of what was achieved in these highly informal summits must not be underestimated. After all, the resolution of the German question would entail a dramatic change in the international order. At Malta, Gorbachev had advocated a pan-European summit to formulate new criteria for a new Europe. He wanted these to guide the process of German unification. But had this idea been pursued, it would have created an entirely different decisional environment. Instead, given the urgency of the crisis in East Germany, the Americans insisted that the international dimensions of unification be handled simply by the two Germanys plus the four occupying powers of 1945, America, Russia, Britain, and France. 
in a series of bilateral discussions in February, Kohl, Gorbachev, and Bush invented the so-called 2 plus 4 formula. And with the 2 plus 4 format, by concentrating decisions among a few powers dominated by the United States, which had no real problems with rapid unification, it was possible to avoid a big and potentially obstructive post-war peace conference over Germany of the sort Gorbachev had envisaged. In May 1990, when Gorbachev met Bush again in Washington, the Soviet leader conceded the right of a unified Germany to freely choose which alliance it belonged to. This superpower agreement allowed Kohl to deal directly with Gorbachev. When they met at the summit in Russia in July, Kohl made clear that unified Germany wished to be a full member of NATO. And Gorbachev agreed. And Kohl pledged a package worth 100 billion Deutschmarks to ensure complete Soviet withdrawal from German soil. This bargain, which is also seen you know, as a sort of end of war, post-war end of Cold War, paved the way for the four occupying powers to surrender their victor rights and for the re-establishment of a united and fully sovereign Germany on the 3rd of October 1990, 45 years after the defeat of the Third Reich. The German question had finally been resolved by consent, not force. So had the Cold War division in Europe. And symmetry had played a significant part in this denouement. So, what can we conclude from these reflections about symmetry and the transcendence of the Cold War? Today, we still live within the post-Cold War settlement in Europe, the one that was crafted between 1985 and 1991 primarily by Soviet, American, and German leaders. And as I have argued, because of the symmetry of 1985 to 1988, the Cold War nuclear arms race was diffused. This period also saw the erosion of the ideological hostility, the de-othering of the other. Similarly, as I have suggested, that another round of intense symmetry in 1989 and 1990 helped resolve the German question. And as a result, Germany was reunified. Now let's recall one crucial byproduct of all this symmetry, namely that the United States continued to be a European power. This may seem a banal observation, but it is easy to imagine an alternative scenario. One in which German unification would have happened, but it would have led to Soviet and American withdrawal from Germany. In fact, because Germany chose to unify within NATO, an option condoned by Gorbachev, America remained in Europe. Russia, however, was pushed out of Germany, and after the Warsaw Pact collapsed in 1991, it was also excluded from Eastern Europe. And I think these two maps make this point very graphically. The process of exclusion has created a growing Russian sense of alienation and insecurity. And in recent years, this has raised questions about the diplomacy of the Gorbachev era. 
Did Gorbachev sell out the Soviet Union in his deals with Reagan? Was he duped by coal and the Americans that NATO would not be extended to the East? Was he essentially bribed out of Europe? The sense of estrangement and humiliation lies at the heart of Putin's challenge to the West over Ukraine. He represents his actions as self-defense against Western aggression. And for example, when justifying the annexation of the Crimea, he said, Western leaders have lied to us many times, made decisions behind our backs, placed us before an accomplished fact. This happened with NATO's expansion to the East as well as the deployment of military infrastructure at our borders. But such charges of Western betrayal are a rewriting of history. In the summits of 1990, Western leaders never pledged not to enlarge NATO beyond Germany. And the Soviets never raised the question of NATO enlargement, except in so far as it might to apply to former East German territory. The timing is crucial. The implosion of the Soviet Union in late 1991 began a decade of crisis and humiliation. And the extension of NATO after 1993 aroused a new sense of threat. All this triggered a blame game about the denouement of the Cold War. But it should be emphasized that the Soviet collapse was the result of internal factors, especially the disintegration of the economy and the devolution of power to the republics. And NATO's expansion was a response to the request of Eastern European states to join the alliance, an act of free choice. So, finally, let me return to the big picture and the point of this lecture. The leaders I have discussed tonight shared a sense of history, a conviction that the years of 1985 to 1991 constituted a real unique opportunity, a chance, as Reagan had told Gorbachev to say, to hell with the past, a chance, as Kohl put it, to shape a historical moment in world politics. Equally important, they all approached this historic moment in a spirit of cooperation. They wanted to integrate East and West in a new world order. Diffusing the Cold War arms race helped to transcend hostility and facilitate discussion of common values. This should be acknowledged as a real achievement of diplomacy, regardless of what happened to the USSR. And I emphasize this because I think right now the extraordinary achievement of those years is in danger of being overshadowed by the disarray that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. The spirit of cooperation meant that change was accomplished while conflict was avoided. As I emphasized at the start of my lecture, in the past the map of Europe had been redrawn only through conflict not least two horrific world wars because diplomacy failed. In the period 1985 to 1991, however, the Cold War ended peacefully, not least because this time diplomacy worked when and where it mattered, at the summit.
Well, thank you very much, uh, Christina, for making your case with enormous erudition, but also um, really sort of great clarity, I think. I mean, the purpose of, of this event is, is to look at the interface between academic study and professional practitioners who are on the ground. So I'm going to ask our, our respondents to make uh, some comments and then possibly come back to Christina and then there should be some time for, for questions from the floor as well. Our first respondent is, is Sir Roderick Braithwaite. Uh, Stuart introduced him, but I'm not sure that he, he mentioned the fact that uh, you were there on the, the cusp of revolution, really. You started as the ambassador to the USSR and finished not so much uh, later on as ambassador to the Russian Federation. <laughs> so, I mean, you were there on the ground. Uh, so, so, please, we would very much welcome your, your comments. Well, my wife was there on the barricades. I mean, I literally <laughs> joined the siege of the White House. She was there giving food and drink to the defenders on the night of the shooting. But anyway, um, uh, Christine, you were talking about uh, human agency, which in, in, when I was young was called the role of the great man in history, and you didn't mention any great women. And I think, I think that's probably a correct emphasis, but I think it is slightly misleading to leave Mrs. Thatcher out entirely, because I think what she did in the first period, and particularly in 1984, I mean, there were two people who drove who drove the conversation, who made the conversation begin. One was Thatcher, because she saw Gorbachev and said, that's a man I can work with, and that was in 1984. But above all, I think Gorbachev. Gorbachev, I think, had the courage and the imagination and the insight to see that the Soviet Union couldn't go on to, as it was, and the political skill to push his ideas through his own pretty difficult political setup. And if he hadn't done that, Reagan would have gone on talking about the evil empire. Um, so I, I think that the first, the first important human agent in this was, was definitely Gorbachev. The great thing about Reagan was, who's a president I greatly admire, was that he had also the imagination and the courage, the imagination to see what was going on and the courage to change his mind, which I think was also... Uh, a very important element in what happened. But I think, you know, you said you want to hear from the bureaucrats as well. Um, professionals, I think. Professionals is the word you used. The thing is that we bureaucrats or diplomats, as we like to call, call ourselves, um, are not entirely sure that the great men are going to get it right, or if they've reached an agreement, if they've formulated it clearly, or if they can remember what it was. And I think it's quite important to remember another summit when H.W. Bush's son looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Mm. And there is a myth amongst great men that they somehow have the ability to understand one another in the way other human beings don't, and it's not true. Um, in this case, it was true because the people were remarkable, but in many cases the people are not remarkable and it doesn't work. So it's not a formula that, that always works. Um, Cole one should remember, and the Germans in general, were very irritating to their allies because they kept on going and promoting their own national interests mm. and pursuing the reunification of Germany, which was something we thought was liable to rock the boat. Kohl was a tremendously effective opportunist, mm. and I think a man who deserves better of his country than uh, the way he's now regarded. But on the question of agency, you, you, you 
you mentioned at the end, the question of whether Gorbachev, whether Russians think Gorbachev was double-crossed. The fact is that at the end of the day, whatever Russians think he might have done, he was not in a position to do anything. He could not have stopped the reunification of Germany. But, and however, I don't think anybody could, but and however, another man, another Soviet leader, might have done some very silly things and there could have been serious bloodshed. So we were very lucky, I think, with all the participants, but my view, and I'm biased, uh, because I have looked into his eyes, and I do think he's a nice man, um, is that Gorbachev was the man who actually triggered it off. He was the catalyst that made it possible. So that's on the great men of history. On the question of rewriting history, NATO enlargement, I, as you know, I don't entirely agree with your view that the Russians are right, rewriting history, and I think it's worth going through some of the things that actually happened and getting down to some of the granular things that went on. One, one thing is quite true, and, and nobody denies it, no written assurances were either asked for or given in the course of any negotiations. The Russians don't claim that they were. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is in the run-up to the um, the German settlement in September 1990, a lot of talk went on, which does happen in negotiations. It happens uh, over dinners, it happens in all sorts of places, and people say things which do not end in the final text, but which are part of the lubricant, which makes it possible for people who start by disagreeing violently with one another to come to an agreement. Things were said, things were said by Baker and Cole, which were capable of misinterpretation by the Russians. They were not pledges not to enlarge NATO, but they were ambiguous. Um, and it's not surprising that the Russians read more into that wording uh, than was intended. That's the first point. That's up to the negotiation. The negotiation itself, the last I went on, I was in Moscow while it was going on, the, la the last days, which were in September, 1990, and the last day itself, which was the 11th of September, was marked by a huge row over the right of NATO forces other than the Bundeswehr to station in East Germany. The row was such that Shevardnadze walked out and said he wasn't going to sign the treaty the morning that it was due to be signed, and uh, Genscher had a fit and went round and bearded herd uh, over breakfast because the person who was insisting on getting the wording right was the British political director at the time, John Weston. And he wrote a detailed account, which is in the British documents on foreign policy, of exactly what went on and the difficulties in devising an extremely torturous formula which did allow, subject to the views of the German government, uh, Western forces to deploy into eastern Germany and exercise and then presumably leave again. And what John said of that formula was that it was as much as we could hope for in the highly charged atmosphere today, both in the German and the Russian camp. Now, the point about that is you can imagine what would have happened if somebody had suggested at that meeting that NATO should enlarge beyond the eastern border of Germany. I mean, there, there would have been no successful result in that negotiation. Um, now, the Russians heard all this stuff, 
they may have concluded from that that there was no intention to enlarge NATO beyond the eastern border of Germany, and indeed that's true. At that time, there was no such intention. But then Germany is reunified, and all sorts of other things start to happen. And early in 1991, Havel, who I think was already president of the Czech Republic by then, said that the Visegrad countries, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Hungary, should join NATO. And the Russians asked for assurances as to what our intentions were, and they were given them. I was present on two occasions. John Major gave assurance that there was no such intention to the Soviet Defence Minister. Heard gave the same assurance to the Soviet Foreign Minister. And Werner, the Secretary General of NATO, said, these are all oral statements, nobody's saying anything was written down, said specifically that expanding NATO, that was that summer, expanding NATO would damage relations with the USSR. Now, um, Gorbachev has been accused many times by Russians for not getting those assurances in writing, and that's regarded as either a failure or, if you're a very right-wing Russian, as evidence of Gorbachev's treachery. There was, of course, never any hope that he would get written assurances, because if we'd been asked for them, we'd have to think what was going on and we'd have to conclude that we couldn't give such assurances, so we'd never got them. But the oral assurances came from responsible people And the Russians were entitled to assume that these people were speaking uh, in due, as the French say, conscience de assures, in in understanding what they were saying and its implications. It was a misunderstanding, if you like. There was no intention at that time when these people said these things to enlarge NATO. And then circumstances changed and American policy changed and so the thing began to lumber forward. I think in those circumstances it's not surprising that the Russians feel betrayed, and I think you can imagine how we would have felt if the circumstances had been reversed. We would have been pretty cross with the Russians. Now, um, that's the question of assurances. The Russian resentment of this whole process was greatly exacerbated by military action, Western military action, NATO military action in Bosnia in 1995, and even more so by the bombing of Belgrade in 1999, and the detachment of Kosovo. And all those things, except the last, all happened before Putin. I'm not talking about Putin. This is about Russia and the perception of Russians. Now, it doesn't much matter if you think these are unreasonable fears that we never intended to, we don't intend to, we can't, as it turns out, take military action very far to the east of NATO. Um, it doesn't matter whether the Russian view is unreasonable. It's a fact. It's just as much a historical fact as something you might find in a document. And so I don't think this is rewriting history. I think it's all part of the same rather difficult history, which is turning a bit nasty on us at the moment. Thank you very much. So I did Sir Roderick Lyne. He's, I just wonder whether you have a different perspective, given that your, your own diplomatic uh, career was, was, was very distinguished, but was in a rather different focus, and perhaps more, more British-based, although you were also uh, ambassador in, in Russia, not the Soviet Union. And you worked for me in the Soviet Union. Mm. <laughs> I can say, this, this could be a very short set of remarks, because in the 1980s, I was Roderick Braithwaite's bag carrier, so I learned to say I agree with Roderick. <laughs> um, <laughs> Christina was very disparaging about gerontocrats, and 
since I worked with him in the 1980s and I myself retired 11 years ago. I think I'm geriatric and I don't know quite what it makes you, Roderick. Well, I'm not a gerontocrat because a gerontocrat is in charge of something. I'm not in charge of anything. And he's not in a coffin. I, I just want to make one or two random observations, firstly about Gorbachev. Um, I agree with Christine and with Roderick as always, um, and with Nick Clegg probably too, um, on the credit due to Gorbachev. Um, of course, you might argue that the first important human agent in this story was not Gorbachev, but was Viktor Grishin, who was a close associate of Chernyenko and was very nearly elected General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1985 uh, instead of Gorbachev, an interesting counterfactual for um, PhD students would be how different would history have been had Grishin uh, been elected, but he wasn't. Um, Christina said that Gorbachev was keen to reform the system. Um, I would argue that in the end he became keen, but I don't think that's where he started out. Uh, he knew, like all the members of the Politburo, had known for many years, and interesting stuff comes out of those who read Politburo records. There's a book by Professor Robert Service due out later on this year that will uh, show from those records how the Politburo were being warned uh, from certainly 1980 onwards, um, uh, week in, week out, about the terrible economic situation, not only in their country but throughout the Warsaw Pact. Um, and Gorbachev knew that the economy was in dire straits when he came in. Uh, the great thing about Gorbachev was he had the courage to say so in public. He was the first and only Soviet leader actually to tell the truth to his own people. He did it at slightly too great length, but it was remarkable the sort of speeches he made in 1985, particularly 1986. Um, his problem was that he didn't have a clear plan as to what to do about it. And indeed, he still believed, and I think perhaps to this day still believes, uh, in, in, in socialism. He did not set out to demolish communism. He did not set out to d demolish the Communist Party. He wanted to make the system more efficient, uh, more effective, more transparent. He wanted to rebuild it, and hence the slogans he used of perestroika, rebuilding, uskarenia, acceleration, and glasnost, which essentially was about transparency. Uh, secondly, the Thatcher Gorbachev, Roderick was quite right, I think, to, to mention her role in this, which was important. Um, yes, when she met Gorbachev a few months before he was elected, four months before he was elected at Chequers in December 1984, she could see he was a very different personality. Actually, anybody meeting Gorbachev in that period, which I didn't, could see that, and, and, and all her advisors had told her she was going to be meeting a very different kind of Soviet leader. But we have to remember that for the next two years, the official line of the British government, most Western governments, was that Gorbachev was somebody you had to be particularly wary of because he was trying to make communism work better. He was trying to make the Soviet Union a, a more effective threat to us. It was really only from about the turn of 1986-1987 that uh, the drive for partnership really took off and, and the Thatcher-Gorbachev uh, relationship uh, set off. Um, so that on Gorbachev. Uh, a little bit on the thesis of human agency and the importance of personal contact at the highest level. Of course this isn't new. Uh, you only have to say Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin or you only have to remember the importance of uh, General de Gaulle's amour propre uh, on the conduct of international relations. 
But of course, these personal contacts are much, much more important now simply because of modern communications. Because people can not only meet more easily with, with, with modern aircraft, they can talk to each other the whole time. You have instant real time communication, uh, which means that so much diplomacy nowadays is conducted directly between leaders and between their offices and their staffs, whereas in the past it went at a slower pace through ambassadors and foreign offices and slower means of communication. Mm. That is simply a fact of life. Uh, a British Prime Minister or an American President has no choice but to spend more time on foreign affairs uh, than they uh, would have been obliged to do, some chose to do, in the past. Um, the point about simultaneous interpretation, Christina showed a picture of Reagan and uh, Gorbachev wearing earpieces. Um, well, that was at a press conference, and uh, they, leaders get, tend to use simultaneous interpretation at press conferences and when they meet in multilateral meetings like the G7. But for the most part, and indeed every summit meeting I ever attended, they used consecutive interpretation. And this is very important for two reasons. One is it means that it is critically important to have interpreters of enormous skill who know the subject matter and are so good at interpreting that they can convey nuance. And we were very fortunate in this period uh, that, that there were such interpreters around. Uh, on the Soviet side, for many years, there was a remarkable man called Viktor Sukhodryov. Uh, Gorbachev used an equally remarkable interpreter called Pavel Palashenko. Margaret Thatcher had the services of a very fine um, British diplomat called Tony Bishop and also used uh, an academic, Richard Pollock. They played a very important part in this process. The other point about simultaneous interpre uh, consecutive interpretation is that it forces people to compress their words into paragraphs. So if you're very garrulous like Gorbachev, you can't just keep rabbiting on because the interpreter can't remember it all. So you have to think in advance what you're going to say and put it in a rather coherent, punchy form, paragraph by paragraph. And then, of course, while the other guy is speaking, you have time to start framing your thoughts for the next paragraph. So in many ways, consecutive interpretation actually helps a negotiation. Uh, too much simultaneous, I think, can, can, can lead you the wrong way. There are pitfalls in consecutive interpretation. Um, I was at Chequers on one occasion when John Major was having a meeting with Helmut Kohl across a lunch table and told him an extremely funny joke. Helmut Kohl's lady interpreter, Dorothea, was so convulsed by the punchline that she couldn't interpret it for about two or three minutes. And Cole nearly exploded in fury because he was waiting for the punchline and didn't um, understand the joke. When he did get it, I thought the building was going to fall down because when a man of that size shakes, uh, it causes trouble. The other story I remember was uh, not a meeting I was personally at. When Jeffrey Howe was, uh, had been at a, a working lunch with Edward Shevardnadze, and at the end of the lunch, Howe hadn't quite managed to finish his sticky toffee pudding or whatever the uh, Russians had served up to him, um, and apologized to Shevardnadze by saying, using the biblical quotation, uh, I'm sorry, but the, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And the Soviet interpreter uh, calls Fury to Shevardnadze by translating as this, this as, um, the meat was quite, uh, the, the vodka was good, but the meat was off. <laughs> <laughs> there are 
risks in personal diplomacy. I mean, Roderick Braithwaite mentioned the George W. Bush impression of, of uh, Putin when they first met. And it's worth looking. I looked up the full quotation. Uh, Bush at Ljubljana in June 2001. It, it, it's interesting to listen to it now. I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. And we had a very good dialogue. And then he went on to say, I was able to get a sense of his soul. Well, you can get a sense of his soul without concluding that it's straightforward and trustworthy, which most of us uh, might not think it is now. And Bush's recent line on this was that not that he got it wrong, but that um, Putin had changed as a result of all the oil money coming into Russia. You could argue, taking a different example, that the euro, which is the cause of so much pain and grief in Europe at the moment, but fundamentally it was not a bad idea, uh, might have been better constructed if it had not been driven forward at such speed and with so little attention to detail mm. and to people fulfilling the necessary criteria for the thing to work, if it hadn't been driven forward as a very, very personal project of Helmut Kohl, François Mitterrand and Jacques Delors, three very powerful personalities. Um, I would argue that Christina was quite rude about bureaucrats and how they held things up. Um, and she said that Europe would have spiralled into chaos if the bureaucrats had been allowed to deal with the end of the Cold War. Um, I think you need a combination of this personal leadership, personal decision-making that politicians can and do give you. Otherwise, not a lot happens. Certainly, the bureaucrats can't fulfil that in the same way. But you also need the bureaucracy to watch out for the heffalump traps and to organise the follow-up. And one of the reasons why the 2 plus 4 process worked was it was politically driven, but you had a team of, of very, very uh, highly skilled bureaucrats, and Roderick mentioned one of them, John Weston, who actually made sure that the detail was there in the negotiation. Uh, final observation, uh, the causes of the present troubles. Um, Christine is absolutely right that there has been a great deal of rewriting of history. Uh, in the broadest sense, the Kremlin has developed a narrative uh, over several years, but very strongly over the last year, that the West is seeking to contain Russia. Putin has actually extended containment backwards in his speech about the annexation of Crimea. Containment, of course, started at the beginning of the Cold War and was a term coined by George Kennan. Um, but Putin now declares that Russia, the West has pursued containment against Russia in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, this narrative that Russia was betrayed, that Russian weakness was exploited, that Russia has been encircled by an enlarging NATO, that we have been seeking to wrest Ukraine away from Russia. Actually, when you look at the inattention that the West paid to Ukraine over many, many years, you can see what a fallacy that is. Um, a, a narrative now of unremitting Western hostility uh, to Russia. Now, uh, that may be a false narrative, the critical point about it is that it is widely believed. The perception is a very important factor underpinning support for uh, the course that Putin is taking at the moment. Um, the truth of the matter is that for about 15 years, from about 1988 to 2003, we were on broadly converging paths between what I would crudely call the West and the Soviet Union and then Russia, uh, but then this changed. We were pursuing, both of us, from both sides, a goal of working towards strategic partnership, a phrase very much used at the time, uh, but that failed. 
Why did it fail? It didn't fundamentally fail because of NATO enlargement. Putin actually accepted NATO enlargement, added Yeltsin, they didn't like it. Uh, but Putin, in 2002, when NATO decided on the second wave of enlargement, uh, had a meeting with George Robertson in Brussels, NATO, then NATO Secretary General, and at a press conference afterwards, basically said, my military folk don't really uh, see the sense of this, but I can live with it. He was then asked a question as to whether Russia might ever join NATO itself, and instead of batting it away, he actually said, well, if NATO continues on its present course, all sorts of possibilities are open. Um, that was the attitude at the time. I don't think it failed because of theater missile defense. I don't think it failed because of the Iraq war, although these were all bugbears in the relationship. Essentially, two things appeared to change the direction of uh, the Putin administration in Russia. One was the influx of wealth through the rising price of oil, which suddenly made uh, the model of reform much less attractive. And the other, and I think most critical factor, uh, were the color revolutions, but particularly the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, which was, first of all, such sensitive territory for any Russian, mm. and secondly, was a terrible humiliation for Putin, in which, because he had invested so heavily in, in Yanukovych's election, uh, in which I think he felt that he had been betrayed by the Western leaders that he had been cultivating uh, over the previous four years and made to look a bit of a fool. Um, it, it looks like a very, very clear turning point. Where we are now, can personal diplomacy, the personal relationship between leaders, change the present position? I don't think it can. I think it needs a lot more than that. Chancellor Merkel has tried harder than anybody. She's spoken to Putin on the phone something like 50 times over the last year and a quarter. She's had a whole series of meetings with him. She's extremely savvy. Uh, it hasn't actually so far caused um, a fundamental change in the situation. We'll have to see where we go from here and whether the Minsk agreement works, but I think it requires something larger than that to get us back onto a different course. Yeah, I will finish. Mm. Okay, I'm going to come back to an academic, an academic who, who has made his mark not only on comments on, on, on Russia in the past, but also on, on, on China. And I'm not asking you to speak about that. I will. But, uh, please, let, let, let's have your perspective. Thank you, Janet. I'll, I'll be brief, because I don't have Christina's knowledge about these events, and I certainly don't have the insider perspective that the two Sir Rodericks have in terms of what actually went on. Uh, let me first congratulate you, Christina, on, on a job well done with the lecture, also saying that we're so much looking forward to the book that will be coming out of on, on these and related uh, issues. Now, I must confess, and particularly in this setting, that I'm a little bit of a summit skeptic in that great balance that historians always need to strike between structure and agency. I'm probably slightly more on the structure side than most of the comments that we'll be hearing here. I'm not saying that summits are unsignificant, clearly play an important role. But they have to fit the historical moment. They have to fit the time into which they are set. And if they do not, the ability of leaders to break through is very, very limited. And we have seen that time and time again. Sometimes this is simply about leadership generations and what is happening at the top. I mean, Reagan's quip about the Soviet leaders that you refer to, Christina, they kept dying on me, which 
is entirely true. I mean, Reagan was indeed seeking a summit from the very moment he came into office, very much against, by the way, some of the advice that he was getting from his own people in the White House, but it was difficult to organize until 1995 because there simply weren't anyone on the other side uh, who could be set up for this. So if you want to think contrafactually, which sometimes makes sense, um, that's well worth considering. Then, of course, there is what you could term the overall picture, the general sense of what is going on in the world in the mid-1980s and the late 1980s. And this is something that needs to be underlined when you look at the efficacy of summitry overall. You cannot understand what goes on without it. The general sense of Soviet decline, pervasive at least a year after Gorbachev comes into power, but visible even in 1985, I would argue. But also the other side to this, the sense of rising American strength. Now, these are perceptions but perceptions matter immensely with regard to these kinds of issues. Um, they certainly matter immensely for the people who actually then have to negotiate, not just the leaders themselves, but maybe first and foremost for their aides and staffers, the, the, the people who, who help out. Um, then there is the domestic political scene. Um, crucial, as we know, in all kinds of negotiations. Now, in this period, particularly in Gorbachev and Reagan, in my view, but also in Margaret Thatcher, we deal with leaders who are exceptionally brave in what they want to put forward. Um, it's hard to see the same kind of bravery elsewhere, by, by the way, in, in this period. But for the three of them, uh, they go remarkably far in trying to deal with uh, the issues that they see as being problematic in their own um, domestic public opinion or the domestic electorate. They took it about as far as they could possibly go. In terms of Gorbachev, of course, he didn't have to refer to uh, elections as such, but he had an increasing sense of what public opinion meant in the Soviet Union, and that was important, particularly when you get out to 1988, 1989, and before the revolutions in Eastern Europe uh, happen. The significance of people who provide the advice, particularly those who are on the spot, um, often underrated in much of the work that I have seen, on, on international affairs. And that's not just because they are there to, as you sometimes hear, uh, contain the leaders um, from going too far in terms of the directions that they want to go in. They're not, usually they're not able to do that. And it's, it's, it's very, very hard. Look at Ronald Reagan at Reykjavik, for instance. Uh, all of his aides would have died to try to pull him away from that negotiating table. They, they can't do that. But they provide the context. They provide the interpretation. And maybe first and foremost, in my experience, they tell the leaders afterwards what has really happened. They put it into context. And that is remarkably important, I think, in this, in this overall, overall sense. So, now, summits are important. They lead to important breakthroughs. They are enormously important in terms of atmospherics, if we can call it that. I mean, the, the, the sense that people are able to speak directly to each other and understand each other. Very often what really happens, of course, is what we could call creative misunderstandings uh, in terms of what actually goes on on the other side. But they are still important, and, and, and they do matter. Now, um, here's a couple of points um, to frame this in terms of the matter of German unification in itself. Um, there's absolutely no doubt, and I agree with Christina on this, uh, the significance uh, of the leadership initiatives that happened. But that should in no way overshadow 
what really drove events forward, which was, of course, what happened on the ground in East Germany. I mean, if it hadn't been for that, both during 1989, but equally importantly during the critical year of, of 1980, it would have been very difficult, I think, to foresee the kind of um, uh, arrangement that then uh, came out in the end. Now, it almost throws us back to Marx's saying, one of the truest things that Marx ever said about people making history but not under circumstances of their own choosing. Uh, I do think that in the 89-90 period, the Western leaders actually understood that much more acutely than what Gorbachev himself did. Uh, this is not in any way taking away from the bravery that Gorbachev showed in his immense leadership abilities inside his own, um, his own political um, sector as well. But the key thing, I think, for understanding what happened with regard to Germany, particularly when it came to the endgame, is understanding what happened on the ground in the East that no one could, could move away from. Uh, now, interestingly, as Christina concluded, what much of this did was, of course, to empower the West German leaders, Kohl and Genscher, over others, because they could con constantly refer to what was happening in East Germany and force a solution, which I think many Western leaders, not least in this city, would have liked to think about evolving over a little bit more, little bit more time. Um, and particularly when it came to the, to, the, to the final negotiations about troop dispositions and what was going to happen, I remember uh, interviewing Genscher about this at one point, what mattered most to him when you know, push came to show in that frantic night that, where he was running around. And, whether, and I, was, I was silly enough to ask him, you know, did it matter that he himself was born in, in East Germany? And he looked at me, you know, of course, young man, it mattered. It mattered in everything I did. Everything I did in, with regard to these summits, everything I did politically, um, uh, everything that I stood for as a German. Don't forget, he said, pointing to me, that night I remembered more clearly than ever something I couldn't say. Ich bin ein deutscher Patriot. Now, these things are important because they refer back, they, you know, events on the ground and power leaders to do things that they otherwise probably would have liked to do but wouldn't have been in a position to do. So that's the balance that I like to strike between agency and structure with regard to summits. I only forgot to say at the beginning Christina that to history to would have been different if Napoleon had been born 30 years earlier and Hitler had been killed on the Western Front in 1918. <laughs> it's exactly the point you're making. Okay, thank you. Uh, Christina, I'm sure you'd, you'd like to make a, a, a response. I mean, I'm sure you could give another lecture, but if I can just ask you to, to, be, to be as brief as possible so that we give the audience uh, an opportunity to ask a few questions. I'll take 10 minutes and then I, because there are so many of my students here, I want to give them the opportunity to, of course, to ask questions, not just to me, but um, to the wonderful witnesses we have here. Um, I'm combining a few of the comments that were made. Um, one, this question of whether I was proposing that symmetry is a formula. I'm not proposing that symmetry is a formula. I actually believe that the historical moment is very important, and I think that was one thing I wanted to stress, that there was something very particular about this period, 85 to 91, um, within which certain systemic pressures 
um, had come to a head, but then you had the right leaders to do something. I very much agree that, uh, yes, Merkel has talked to Putin and Obama many, many times, and it's not going anywhere. But I think in, 1980, in 1989, 1990, in particular in that spring of 1990, you had the right combination of people who are willing to meet all the time, who are really pushing um, things forward from one summit to another, while indeed the bureaucrats um, in, in within the two plus four formula uh, were working um, very much in the background, also in um, some kind of format of um, woolly, diplomacy, woolly jumper diplomacy. In fact, you know, there's wonderful photographs of them sitting on on uh, deck chairs, on lawns, and um, discussing the important legal acts. So I wouldn't want to diminish the official's role um, at all. But I think um, at very particular moments, these bilateral summits really drove forward sort of the, the key issues that would allow for this to be wrapped up within a 10-11 month um, period. And I think that is really special, sort of the intensity. Um, to, to pick up, um, you know, the more specific point, um, I, I very much agree that when Gorbachev came to power, he wasn't immediately out there, um, you know, driving big reforms. Um, indeed, things began really rather slowly, and then the more he tried, the more radical he became, and he tried different things, and didn't really work out. But ultimately, he had wanted to make the Soviet Union um, more competitive, both economically uh, and politically. Um, Roderick and I have discussed uh, many times this issue um, over, over NATO expansion, and I think I just want to make the point that what I'm arguing is really what was said and, and not pledged or, or, or done before the Soviet Union collapsed. I think once the Soviet Union collapses at the end of 1991, really geopolitics changes um, altogether in, in the European context. But but in, in, while the Soviet Union was still around, of course, a lot was said, and, and I would not uh, deny a moment that even in 1990, um, I had access to um, the papers of, of Genscher and the German Foreign Ministry, and Genscher, who was a very much pan-Europeanist, discussed all sorts of ideas of uh, pan-European security structures, um, even with the Soviets. But, you know, we have to ask whether this is to mollify, to make it look better, to try different approaches. When it came to the final deals, we got what we have in the treaty, and that is what is written. Uh, and that was accepted on by all sides in the spirit of cooperation at the time. Of course, once the Soviet Union implodes and is gone and, and, and the Russian rum state remains and once the Yugoslavian crisis ensues, international politics looks entirely different. And, um, you know, America that had not even been that interested in getting itself too much involved in European affairs suddenly reemerges in late 1993, 1994 uh, on, on the European security agenda. And then to, to come to Arne's points about um, systemic forces and, and people power. I guess I'd you know, picked out symmetry uh, and summits and, and human agency as, as something we perhaps hadn't so much thought about in this context where uh, the literature is full of that, you know, is there an inevitability if you think about um, the systemic uh, decline of the Soviet Union and, and, the, and the Comecon? and the Eastern Bloc in general, and of course the story of that it's all people power and revolutions. But what I would like to highlight is that, okay, there's revolutions in the street, but if there's revolutions, if the borders uh, collapse, if we have to think how we um, create predictability, stability, and we keep peace, in particular because we are worried what may happen with all these Red Army troops all around Europe, then of course we need the leaders to manage this process to create some kind of calculability and to also make territorial arrangements, and that can only happen um, at the highest level. So what I want to say is that uh, 
it was the leaders who managed this process and tried to somehow move step by step to come to a conclusion that was palatable to all because Kohl may have been the person who was very much driving unification and who, who in some ways you know, offered from above what the people wanted from below, the East German people wanted. I mean, he was the West German leader offering what the East German people wanted. But he had no plans. Nobody had any plans. There was no operative unification policy. So they had to sort of make it up as they went along. And I think this is the achievement that they, they could always find some kind of common ground to make these compromises and ultimately achieve very quickly certain treaties that would stand. And we could say, well, we have a settlement that has stood almost 25 years, so it can't be that bad. <laughs> OK, thank you. I mean, I'm afraid we've only got until 8 o'clock when uh, uh, they turn the lights off and the heat off and sweep us out. <laughs> but I, I'm sure there are questions that the audience have, have got, either for our panellists or particularly for uh, Christina. OK, please, sir. If you could identify yourself first, please, it would help question. Donald Davidson. Um, I've read that, um, the, that uh, Yeltsin stopped supporting Milosevic in return for an IMF loan. And, of course, uh, Putin, of course, was director of the FSB at the time. I'm just saying, <coughs> assuming it's true, what I'm saying is he must have felt that, uh, that whole humiliation... Obviously, someone had been uh, brought up in the Soviet Union, which, of course, he called the greatest, you know, um, he must have had that humiliation very, very keenly. So I'm just thinking um, one of the key moments, Putin, who's director, who wasn't leader, was director of this at the time, in terms of his uh, whole developing negative attitude toward, towards the West. Putin's attitude towards the West in his first three and a half years was enormously positive, so it doesn't seem to have soured him for very long. I do think that what happened in Yugoslavia in 1999, the bombing, uh, did uh, undermine a lot of liberal westernizing arguments in Moscow and, and certainly had a scarring effect on Russian attitudes to the West. What was remarkable about Putin was that within literally weeks of becoming the acting president of Russia uh, at the beginning of the year 2000, he had decided unconditionally to bury the hatchet with NATO, invite the NATO Secretary-General to Moscow, then invited Tony Blair on an informal trip to St. Petersburg, and then built up personal relationships with a whole load of Western leaders. Um, so it didn't stop him pursuing a particular course for a number of years. In his head, whatever he may have felt in his heart, Thank you, Neitzel. Um, I would like to come back to the, uh, Christina's argument of agency. I want to ask um, our two diplomats uh, here, not to use bureaucrats. Um, um, so um, in the relationship between, from Margaret Maggie Thatcher and, and Helmut Kohl, uh, my reading of that relationship is that there was a bit of a lack of agency, and um, um, Maggie Thatcher will didn't like Kohl in, in the end, and therefore had a rather negative perception of German intentions, the Fourth Reich, and so forth and so forth. So would you agree to that, and would you see that this was a problem of the British role in this crucial year in 1989-1990, or, or although there were um, a lot of advisors, I think, as far as I'm aware, telling Maggie Thatcher that there's no danger of a Fourth Reich, and, and go on with that. Um, um, so... 
Is that really a problem of, of agency between the two, or is there more a general uh, structure to, to quote Arnie behind that? I think there was some... Uh, all these questions have two answers, actually, mm. because both answers are correct, but the fact is they didn't get on with one another. She didn't like him. He found her tedious. Lots of people found her tedious. Um, and that played a role, but, of course, her attitude to Germany was not generated by coal. It was generated by personal prejudices, personal history, the whole business of who won the war anyway, and a whole lot of things which I think would have been there in Thatcher, even if it had been somebody much more charming in her eyes, if it had been Gorbachev running Germany. So I don't, I don't think it played a crucial role. Of course, the result was that she had no influence over the final stages of reunification at all. She discredited herself, which was a great pity, and, and an unusual thing for a politician to do because it was quite clear what was going to happen. Germany was going to be reunified. And if you see a steamroller coming down the road towards you, get out of the way. Mm. Mitterrand did. Mitterrand didn't like the idea either, but he was clever enough to shift sideways and mm. she wasn't. More questions, particularly from students. You're not a student, but you are, you are at heart. <laughs> no, no, go, please, Paul, go ahead. Uh, sorry, Paul Keating. Is that on? Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, a uh, question I suppose for, for Christina and also uh, to Rodericks about the, the social aspect, the cultural aspect of the, the summitry as well, the setting in which these guys are placed in order to facilitate a discussion. Um, you know, the fireside setting for some of the photographs, the, the handshakes, the simultaneous translation, all of which presumably facilitates some of this interaction. I was wondering how much work there's been done on the, either from an academic point of view or from personal experience, how much of a performance and a, and a scene setting there is behind, behind all of this bonhomie or willy jumperness or, or how, have we, how have we put it? Yeah, I guess in, as part of um, the project on, on summits from 1970 onwards to looking at this transcending of the Cold War, um, myself and the, the various courses are, are looking also at this um, performative side. Not least because some summits, of course, if you think about super summits, um, may have been, for example, in the early 1970s, really journeys into the unknown. Um, you know, a visit to China, a visit to, to the Kremlin to get really a sense, a smell of the other. Um, but also this aspect that some summits are held in neutral locations. And when you look at the period that I was discussing tonight, in particular at the end of the Cold War, it's quite striking that, for example, um, Gorbachev and Kohl's most important discussion wasn't really in Moscow, but it was on the second day when um, Gorbachev flew with, with Kohl and, of course, the entire delegation to the Caucasus. And it's the whole idea, um, not just, um, you know, to... Sh to show a little bit about, um, you know, the homeland, the country, um, but also to have a much more informal setting and to really build this trust um, in a natural environment, should we say. I mean, Kohl went to the, to the Dacha of Gorbachev, and um, they were there in their woolly jumpers, and no doubt um, this whole thing made it much better in terms of um, that they had a good atmosphere in which it is quite, quite tricky issues with regard to troop withdrawal and how much money should be involved and, uh, and all these kind of things. And there were also elements, um, you know, commemorative uh, moments where they laid wreaths in the area. 
um, to, to, to foster um, Soviet-German reconciliation, for example. So I think all these acts around are important, but there was definitely a push towards something more personal, something more informal. I mean, when <coughs> Gorbachev came to, to Germany in the summer of 1989, they had this long walk on the Rhine, which, if you look at the stenographic protocols, they both discuss at great lengths. <coughs> you this river of history going along, and there's these two men promenading and looking at the little boats. Some comments respondents. Well, I think, first of all, I think one needs to be clear about what you're talking about when you talk about a summit, because there are two kinds of summit. There's that kind of summit where two leaders get together and walk along the Rhine, and there's the big sort of set-piece summit like we had in Wales for NATO or you have with the European... Mm. On, on both of them, the host country puts itself out and spends a lot of money trying to lush up these people and make them feel good mm. by beautiful scenery, nice houses, lots of alcohol or whatever... Um, and, and for the reasons, I think, in both cases, but summits, you know, we have European summits which have 200 people in each delegation. Um, and then what they do is the first evening, the principals, seven or nine or however many it is, if it's the G8, have dinner by themselves with no advisors, only interpreters. Mm. For that reason, for the reason Christie. Because that's what personal relationships are very important. You may misjudge as. Mr. Bush did, but nevertheless, you do want to get a sense of who this guy is. Could I And that's, that's actually one other thing that, that um, I would perhaps want to make a, a comment. Um, that you mentioned, you know, set piece summits versus something else. For example, in the 70s, there was a push towards very informal summitry by Helmut Schmidt, and they ended up on the island of Guadeloupe to discuss the security matters in 1979. Everybody said, What are they doing in the Caribbean? They tried to keep the press out. But um, there was very much a sort of drive that, that you know, the important leaders of the world would get together in an, in an informal, secret manner so that they could talk freely about issues. The same had happened originally with what became the G7. It started out as a library group and something very informal, but very quickly it sort of became an annual event with all the Sherpas and everything that goes around it, and then it changed entirely in, in terms of texture and, and where it was going, and some leaders then didn't like it anymore. Yeah, I think the G7 is important. Uh, people have done different styles. I remember going to a G7 summit in Tokyo that was entirely about formality and there was no substance at all. The Canadians have always tried to, to drag back to the far side chat where it started under Giscard as a G5 at Fontainebleau and tend to have it in log cabins. Um, so you do get different styles. One of the things that matters at something like the G7 is the table. Uh, and one of the things the British got right at one of the summits they held was they had a small round table that the seven leaders could just get round elbow to elbow so the conversation was very close they didn't have to speak through microphones at each other and the following year the Italians came and measured up the table which by then was in Margaret Thatcher's study at number 10 so they could copy it exactly and then the table got carried I think also to um, uh, <laughs> a, 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 across to Canada the number of people in the room matters enormously uh, and there are occasions when you want the degree of formality and you want to show off. I mean, I, I mentioned Putin and, and Blair in St. Petersburg. Putin took Blair to a succession of palaces in order to show that Russia was a great country. And you had these incredibly formal rooms in the Hermitage and uh, out at um, Saskoziela and so on, uh, which were quite intimidating but were designed to show off. But one thing went wrong, which he learned from. He's about six inches shorter than Blair, and he's very conscious of his lack of inches. And the two lecterns at the press conference were side by side in the same height, 
and Putin in all the pictures was completely overshadowed by Blair. Thereafter, whenever Putin met Blair or other world leaders, all of whom were bigger than him, um, uh, the lectures you saw were far apart, so you couldn't get them in the single <laughs> camera shot. Final observation, I mean, on the number of people in the room, Schroeder, because Putin speaks fluent German, got into the habit of meeting Putin more or less over the kitchen table with no interpreter and no officials. Putin, of course, would have had a tape recording of the conversation, no doubt about that at all. But uh, German officials, the German government, never knew what their chancellor had agreed to in those meetings. And that is an incredibly dangerous process, because you're not just meeting like two chums in a pub. You are discussing state business. And I remember asking um, not only the German ambassador in Moscow what had gone on at these meetings, but also Schroeder's diplomatic advice. And he said, well, on the plane home, uh, the Chancellor says to me, I'm allowed three questions about what went on. And he said he never gets past the second before he says, I'm bored with this and doesn't tell me anymore. And I think uh, some real problems arose from that. I have one last question, David. You be very patient, please. Hello. Um, I'm wondering about Gorbachev because you all mentioned how his personality was vital to um, creating the end of the Cold War, leading to the end of the Cold War. Um, and you also mentioned how he, at the beginning of his time as the Soviet leader, did not intend to see the end of the Soviet style of governance. So how did his how did his persona change between the summits that you mentioned in 85 through to 89-90 when he saw that his policies were sort of create were helping the Soviet Union to implode upon itself? It's a big question, but Cassini will give the big answer. How the, how the personality changed? I don't think the personality really changed. I think that very first meeting when, um, when they had first arrived and they walked around and they sat by the fireplace, that really created a rapport between Gorbachev and Reagan. And I think that's why when they met in Reykjavik, even if they didn't get to an agreement and even if people thought it was a failure, they st- could still move on and meet again the following year and, and then by 88 get to the point where they really felt that they had diffused that Cold War. I think it was more problematic from Gorbachev's perspective that then when Bush came into power, um, that you know, initially Bush didn't really want to come and talk to him, um, while you know Gorbachev had to deal with all these things that were going on in Eastern Europe. So I, I wouldn't say that there was really it was an issue of personality change. I think it was more sort of uh, an issue of outlook and how you use your um, Marxist-Leninist doctrine to initially think of um, reforming your state or not even reforming yourself, simply make it workable. But then, of course, the reforms became. Um, more entrenched and he tried, had to then sort of react to it. But I think that has nothing to do with, with that first uh, immediate bond that for some reason was possible to happen in Geneva. Well, thank you. I, I'd like to thank everybody. I'd like to thank the, the audience uh, uh, for coming. I'd like to thank our, 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 all our three respondents for their very cute comments. But above all, we want to thank uh, Christina for sharing her, her research with us. Uh, for letting us, us know, um, you know what she's working on for, for the next book, but uh, above all, for provoking such a, a stimulating discussion. So thank you very much.